Ryan Stanton here with ASEP Frontline, joined today by um, somebody I probably didn't know uh, prior to COVID-19, but has not only gotten to know him, but also contributed to the Stanton MD page on Facebook. Dr. Casey Bryant here today to talk about uh, some of the airway management options uh, that are out there and some research and data that's come out of Europe. So, uh, Dr. Bryant, thanks for joining us here on the Frontline. Happy to be here, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, I guess today we'll kind of focus on uh, the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine guidelines that came out that were primarily focused on uh, high flow nasal cannula use. Um, and they were uh, attempting to, to answer four different PICO questions that they had identified uh, a priori. And um, this was a, even though it's you know named the European Society, this, this was a, um, a panel that was composed of people from all over the world and they used a very structured format uh, to develop these guidelines, uh, the grade method methodology, which is a, an accepted format for, for guideline development. Um, and they used the Cochrane uh, risk of bias assessment uh, in order to, to kind of assess these, these trials um, for quality and whether they were um, answering the question uh, directly. And um, once they collated and pulled the data, they made a recommendation uh, either um, strong recommendation, conditional recommendation, which was um, which took the place of prior weak recommendations, or they made no recommendation, um, and then they they further qualified that recommendation um, with their certainty, so either moderate certainty, low certainty, um, and out of that, um, I think you know reading those guidelines, um, you get a pretty good assessment of the data that's available at that point, and these guidelines came out about a year ago. And, um, and all the data is based off of, of RCT data. So this is kind of uh, the best data we have. Um, and they were trying to answer some important questions for us. Let's run through some of that, um, that, that information and what came out, because we know as this has gone, as this has evolved um, through COVID-19, we've seen a significant increase in high flow uh, as, as a um, management option. I know very early we were a little bit hesitant because of the potential concern for uh, disbursement of, of particles and virus through the room. Uh, but now knowing not only is it a great option, but a, a safe uh, safe intervention that can significantly decrease the uh, risk and uh, potential for intubation. So let's look at those big four PICO recommendations that they count, came out of and, and uh, roll. So the First um, PICO question, again, it, it's for PICO, it, it stands for Patient Interventions Comparator and Outcomes, um, and they use that framework to answer the question. And the, the first one, which I think is, is very applicable to uh, clinicians in, in the emergency department, um, was looking at uh, de novo acute hypoxemic respiratory failure and the use of high flow versus conventional oxygen therapy. And the data was was uh, strong enough and and well aligned enough that they made a, a strong recommendation with a, a moderate level of certainty um, that high flow should be used uh, in in preference uh, over uh, conventional oxygen therapy, so nasal cannulas, face masks, venturi masks, those types of things for people that have acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. When they looked at the data. Um, they they found they, they found that there was a, a four per, four about a four and a half percent absolute reduction in need for intubation, uh, which is obviously an important patient centered outcome. Uh, the number needed to treat for that was twenty three, 
Um, and I know we do a lot of things in medicine that, that you have to treat a lot more people to get that kind of effect. And again, this is a very important effect of avoiding a trip on the ventilator. Um, so uh, strong recommendation, moderate certainty based on the RCT data out there that if you place patients on, on high flow nasal cannula for uh, acute hypoxic hypoxemic respiratory failure, you're going to you know, avoid um, some trips on the ventilator for patients, which is important, obviously. So uh, what we're seeing right now with uh, COVID-19, a great opportunity uh, for intervention-wise. And of course, the way I like to see it is just a, another tool for the toolbox and that, and that escalation need. But, um, I've probably, I've used uh, high flow more in the last two years, well, at least a year and a half than I did ever before. Uh, and now every single week. So um, let's look at uh, uh, number two. And I believe this is the high flow over NIV um, in a hypoxemic acute respiratory failure? So um, the second PICO question um, that they were looking at was, um, I guess the one that would be more applicable to, to our patient populations um, is essentially apneic oxygenation. Um, and um, they were looking at that data and, and this is an area where I think it's important to to read their summation of the data that's out there and then um, go look at these individual trials uh, and assess that data yourself. Because the, the trials, um, they all have their nuances. And I think this, this, this applies to all of the PICO questions, but the trials all have their own individual nuances. And um, they had different comparator arms as far as what was going on in the control arm in comparison to the uh, the high flow apneic oxygenation arm. Some of the trials didn't really have true apnea uh, as a comparator. Some were on non-invasive. So you kind of have to dig into that data a little bit. Um, but um, after they they kind of went through all the data that was out there, um, you know, five studies, which were uh, OR studies, which don't really apply to us. Um, and then five studies of sick patients, which do apply to us. They weren't really able to make a recommendation on this. And they just said that you know, if it's there, go ahead and use it. And um, it's probably not a huge bang for your buck to go set it up uh, to manage an airway. Um, now, you know, apneic oxygenation in general, I think like, like any tool that we're using, it's another tool, it's another approach to managing the patient. And uh, it's important to understand, um, you know, as you know, how to, how to administer it. And um, when your patient goes apneic, you push drugs and they stop breathing, they relax, you know, you need to maintain a patent airway. If you don't have a patent airway, then apneic oxygenation uh, is not, is not going to work. Um, and the way that it works is the, the, you know, the RBCs are still very good at, uh, at, at picking up the oxygen. It creates a positive gradient and a net pull of, of, uh, of ongoing oxygen into the alveolus. And that can buy you some time. Uh, we know that uh, a respiratory acidosis developing, um, you know, while you're trying to, to intubate a patient isn't a huge deal uh, in most cases. Um, and, uh, but that hypoxic um, component can, can lead to, you know, respiratory arrest and, and cardiac arrest and those types of things. So those are what we want to avoid. Um, so if you're going to administer it, you need to maintain a patent airway. And, and it may help you uh, in patients that don't have um, kind of a, I guess the way to think about it would be a PEEP requiring problem. Um, if, if they have a PEEP requiring problem, then administering uh, nasal cannula oxygen in any form is probably not gonna offer you a lot of bang for your buck. Um, 
but if they don't, uh, if you're in a teaching situation, you're trying to get your learners some additional time and they don't have um, uh, a lot of parenchymal disease and a PEEP requiring process, then it's probably reasonable uh, to apply uh, apneic oxygenation while you're managing their airway. Interestingly, that's one of the, uh, the, the waxing and waning kind of uh, practices in emergency medicine was that apneic oxygenation, you know, having the nasal cannula underneath the, um, underneath the mask um, and you know, turning it all the way up. It says 15, but then cranking it up to the washout rate um, and, and having that there. And I know the data has been uh, kind of plus and minus on that in terms of, of outcomes. Um, and what were the outcome differences that they saw with, with this one and with regard to com the comparator? So really when they pulled all of this data together and, and again, highlight that there's a lot of heterogeneity in the data, um, but when they pulled it all together, um, there really wasn't any difference in any of the major outcomes that they're looking for. And I think you're going to have a hard time, uh, you know, studying this problem and getting a clear answer just because the thing that we really care about is, is that, um, you know, that case that you remember for, us, for the rest of your career where, where an airway goes bad or you have a, an arrest in the middle of managing an airway. And um, those, those cases are so few and far between uh, as far as capturing them and then, then assessing whether or not it makes a difference in those, uh, in those scenarios is gonna be challenging from a, a research standpoint. Um, I think it's clear that it doesn't cause harm, um, and if it's there, it might bring you benefit, um, but I think that that benefit gets washed out a little bit when you talk about intubating sick patients, people that have, you know, kind of lung parenchymal disease, and uh, in comparison to where this, the excitement came from originally, which was OR populations where people are showing up MPO um, and, and are, you know, having a good day, um, which is not that's not the patient population that you or I take care of. No, absolutely not. I mean, the airways we are managing are not are not healthy people. And what I educate, you know, you, you do the education on the um, oxygen oxygen dissociation curve and all that type of thing. You get them way up there on the flat, but you have all kinds of minutes to just fiddle around with the airway and take plenty of time. But you know, by the time somebody gets the emergency department report, airway intervention, it's already a, a dumpster fire at that point. And looking at um, you know at the timing that you have and, and every intervention we do is to, to hopefully buy more time and control um, as you're doing those interventions. Uh, let's discuss PICO three. So the the other two PICO questions um, were primarily looking at extubation, and they had similar findings uh, in both of these PICO questions. So um, the the first extubation was looking at patients that had been intubated for more than 24 hours and um, whether or not applying high flow over conventional oxygen therapy would lower rates of, of reintubation. And um, they found somewhere in the range of a 50% uh, risk reduction um, for patients um, after they're being extubated. Um, and they made their, their recommendation as a, as a conditional recommendation with moderate certainty that um, uh, for patients that had been intubated for more than 24 hours, and had a high risk feature. And the, and the reason they uh, applied this high risk, high risk feature nuance to it um, is, is you know, your absolute risk and your um, uh, relative risk are, are different risk um, uh, categories, right? So if, you, if you've been intubated for a couple of days and you have a, a risk of reintubation of 1%, you know, moving that needle 50% isn't a huge 
huge move um, and, and it's not bringing a lot of value uh, to the patient. Um, but if your risk of reintubation is 20%, you know, moving that needle 50% uh, is meaningful. Um, so uh, they, they qualified this recommendation by um, patients having some sort of high risk feature and some examples of this. And I think that this will just align with you walking in the room and looking at a patient saying they probably need a little bit of support when they come off the ventilator, um, included things like age over 65, uh, obesity, um, uh, CHF, multiple comorbidities, uh, intubated for more than seven days, just all the things that you would look at a patient and say, you know, this, this patient's going to have trouble when they, when, when we take this um, breathing tube out, that's a person that you should probably consider uh, extubating to, to uh, high flow nasal cannula. And this is a prophylactic extubation to high flow. You don't wait for them to fail and then throw them on it. You, you talk to your respiratory therapist, this is your plan, you're going to do it for 24 hours, and you extubate them straight to high flow. Um, when, uh, when they looked at the, the answer and compared uh, the data of looking at high flow versus non-invasive, they weren't really able to make a, a call there and just said if it's a patient that you would normally extubate to non-invasive uh, for whatever reason, then, then continue to extubate them to, to non-invasive. So I'm talking to uh, Dr. Casey Bryant, and we've gone through the four PICOs of the recommendations here. Um, so let's give us a breakdown, Dr. Bryant, on um, kind of the state of the union, the five flow nasal cannula. Um, so where, where are we with it right now? And then kind of run through for those that uh, haven't necessarily seen it in their departments or hospital yet, uh, how, how the mechanism works in terms of the benefit that we're seeing. I think with, with any therapy, um, you have to understand kind of the, the underpinnings of what make that, uh, makes that therapy effective. And for high flow, it's, it's a flow-driven therapy. Uh, and that flow um, can be on order of up to 60 or 70 liters, um, can generate some PEEP for your patient. Um, and that PEEP can be higher if their mouth is closed uh, during breathing, but you can get somewhere between three to four centimeters of water. Um, additionally, the the flow, when you think about flows that high, it's kind of intimidating, but they the the um, therapy is 100% humidified and, and the air is warm, which um, uh, kind of quells some of that discomfort that the patient might experience uh, if, if this were coming through an, a regular nasal cannula. And then um, the additional thing is that flow kind of washes out some of your anatomic dead space. So the patients lift uh, to... Uh, to exchange air at the level of the alveolus is not as, as big of a lift. Um, so they don't have to work as hard. So typically when you have a patient, they come into the department or they come to the ICU from the floor or whatever, um, and they're in respiratory distress and you apply um, high flow nasal cannula to them, uh, you'll see them uh, start to slow down their respirations um, as they don't have to work quite as hard to exchange uh, carbon dioxide and, and oxygen. Um, you'll see their comfort levels will improve. And those are important things to observe as you're trying to titrate that therapy on the front end. So consideration for another uh, tool in the toolbox. I know that in my department, we started using it quite a bit more uh, over the last uh, couple of years, really mainly because we have access to it uh, with the increased purchases by the hospital. Um, but being able to use that uh, across the board, not just COVID, of course, COVID has, has found a uh, pretty important niche uh, for the high-flow nasal cannula market, um, but also looking at the other things, chronic lung diseases, COPD, CHF, uh, RSV flu, those types of things. Um, how has how have you seen uh, high-flow nasal cannula 
evolve uh, through the COVID pandemic? I think I've you know seen it evolve like everyone else. Um, you know, we had this kind of fear-based practice on the front end where we were intubating people, uh, you know, off a of nasal cannula because of of aerosol concerns. Um, and now on the on the back end, um, it, the pendulum may have swung too far in the other direction. I don't I don't think it's entirely clear, but uh, we may be um, avoiding intubation uh, and uh, or delaying intubation for too long. And and that that data is. Uh, not clear. Um, prior to COVID, there was some retrospective observational data looking at, at delayed intubation. Um, and that's the major fear with using any of these non-invasive therapies is that you kind of let your patient get to a physiologic cliff and then and then you try to, to intubate them at that point. And that's just a recipe for, for disaster um, and, and bad outcomes. Um, and, and the prior data suggested that there was uh, an association of harm uh, with delaying that intubation for too long. Um, and, you know, we have some meta-analysis, systematic analysis reviews um, on COVID that, that don't show a clear signal of harm from our approach of, of allowing patients uh, a trial of high flow and, and non-invasive and then this kind of late intubation, which is mo mostly defined as as greater than 48 hours from initiation of this higher level of support. Um, but I think it's important to just be uh, tuned into your patient, um, to reassess your patient frequently, uh, and be an astute clinician. Um, and if they start showing signs that, that those therapies are not going to be um, enough for them, then, then intervening earlier rather than, than later, as, you know, as long as that aligns with your patient's goals and wishes, then then certainly you've got to kind of move forward and, and not let your patient languish on one of these non-invasive therapies. And it's a decent segue into um, an objective manner or, or tool you can use, which is the ROCKS index. Um, and that, this came out of pre-COVID data, but there's been um, some retrospective um, uh, reviews of or systematic reviews of retrospective data looking at COVID too. And it maintains its its ability to kind of either predict success at that 12 hour mark um, does a reasonably good job of predicting success. It does a little bit better job of, of predicting failure uh, if, you, if your value that you get is, is too low. And this again, back to the clinician gestalt, I don't know that it's any better than walking in the room and saying this patient looks bad and they're tachypnic and they're on 90% FiO2 and I should probably do something about this. Um, but um, it's an objective tool that maybe maybe will at least prompt you to to um, you know to look at your patient again and uh, maybe follow them a little bit more closely, kind of like we do with you know serial EKGs and and chest pain. Maybe they need serial uh, rocks indices and bedside assessments um, to kind of see what their trajectory looks like. Um, so I, I think these therapies are fine. There's some data um, out of Columbia supporting that that trials on high flow um, lowers your intubation rates uh, in COVID. Uh, that was an RCT. Uh, it was very well done out of Columbia. Um, but I, I think it's key that you, you you have to monitor your patient closely and you have to intervene um, if they're declining uh, and, and escalate their therapy. And actually, we have talked about the ROCK score here on this podcast with Dr. Brian. I think that was his first uh, foray with us uh, here on the podcast. That's ROX index, ROCKS index for intubation after high flow nasal cannula. Um, and then the, the, what's being used, the SpO2, FiO2 respiratory rate 
And right now, for some research purposes on the MD Calc app, they're asking about is the patient COVID positive as well. So I assume that's looking into uh, implementing that and, and maybe a little caveat in there uh, if the patient is COVID as well. Yeah, and again, there they, there is a, a systematic review out there looking at, at COVID patients and applying this uh, ROCS index uh, retrospectively. I'm not um, aware of anything that that was prospective that was done um, or randomized, you know, using this and seeing if it um, uh, real time um, uh, still has has the, the similar results. But um, that systematic review um, included, you know, over 1,100 uh, uh, patients and um, you know showed that uh, it, it retains similar. Uh, areas under the curve for predicting success and, and failure um, with, with fairly good sensitivity and specificity. I believe the sensitivity was close to 70% and, and specificity was close to 80. Um, and again, if you look at the parameters of the ROCS index, it's things that you, you're going to be concerned about or, or tuned into anyway when you have a sick patient. So their, their level of FiO2, um, the, the pulse ox uh, reading that you're getting from that, and then their respiratory rate, um, and and taking those clinical components into consideration is, is part of what we do on a day to day basis. But um, plugging it in, you know, and getting a value may may uh, key you into a patient that needs to be, you know, watched a little bit more closely. How can folks get uh, more inf information? Get in contact with you uh, if they have questions, uh, thoughts, comments on the topic. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, um, Hogtown underscore Doc. Um, also, I'm happy to happy to take an email. Uh, it's uh, casbryan at wakehealth.edu. Absolutely, and I appreciate it. And um, uh, also appreciate the additions uh, on uh, the Stanton MD page with uh, that you've given us throughout the COVID pandemic, uh, bringing some uh, good down to earth translation of a very complicated topic, and hopefully helping dispel some of the um, some of the myths and legends and dogmas and things out there. All those words that that lead people to potentially make bad decisions. Um, but I really appreciate your, appreciate your time today and, and look forward to having you back on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ryan. And as for me, you can contact me at rstantonatasep.org, rstantonatasep.org, or at everydaymed on Twitter. also invite you to subscribe to the podcast, um, as well as our page on Facebook. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASEP Frontline. <laughs>